Hi, I'm Billy. And this is Joe. And we are now in Cinemascope. Your one-stop shop for in-depth film discussion and debate. Each week, we take a different film, person or subject and explore them until the credits roll. This week, we are discussing Daniel Day-Lewis and the art of method acting. However or not, there is a line between professionalism and just being self-indulgent. So, what are we waiting for? Cue music, roll titles, lights, lights, camera camera and action. So, yeah... Method acting. We're talking about that today, and it's an interesting <laughs> subject, which I think is going to get a little bit heated because we both have very interesting opinions on it. Um, but first of all, I think method acting does it work do you, with films where obviously you've got famous actors like Daniel Day Lewis, Charlize Theron, and um, and also the classic Joaquin Phoenix. Do you <laughs> think it actually works? Well, I think yeah, I think it does. I think. Um it works as an approach, definitely. I think it's you know people hold it up as being the the approach to acting. You know if you know people if you can get really get inside the mind of a character that you're playing and like mimic them and do everything that they would do, then you're not you're almost not acting. You're just being the character. Mm. I think there is a def- definitely a difference when it comes to acting. And this is somebody who admires actors but doesn't like to act themselves. Yeah, uh, who is terribly has got terrible stage fright. Um, that there is a de- definitely a difference between being in a when you're in a when you're performing somebody and you're being the character and playing the character i think they're both different approaches and i think they both have their own merits and on this leading in subject of daniel day lewis i think he definitely is somebody who um crosses over the line into being much more he's like the classic mm. example of somebody who becomes the act the character the actor who becomes their subject and uh yeah i think it's uh it's an interesting one to go for in terms yeah. of to talk about i mean it's interesting you say obviously because you you're not an actor as per se and I, I wouldn't say i'm an actor by any means but i have done acting in the past mm. and i've done roles of comparison where i've just learnt the lines and just gone for it and not like being in character as such and um, but then there's another role that i did where i i stayed in character from about like half an hour before mm. just to get myself into the mindset of it um and that is sort of kind of an element of method acting mm. and like i can understand that so there's uh, talks to say like forrest whitaker stayed as idi Amin uh, for the last king of scotland throughout sort of whenever they were actually on set but offset he wasn't he just kind of shut it off at the door mm. so i kind of get that for example i understand how that works and i understand why you'd want to do that because obviously with filming it's different to theater you've not got you can't just stay in in character for the whole time you have to stop and they have to reset and you're waiting a lot of time so it's very easy to kind of lose and sort of build yourself up you've got to run in and go straight into it like you can't really use that half an hour or if it's five minutes to reset for the next take you've just got to stay in it Mm. but then i think there's a line where maybe potentially it, it it crosses the line uh, an example, I suppose, is Jared Leto in Suicide Squad of mailing dead rats and condoms and mm. just not being very kind of professional in the sense of is that a line which then gets crossed, I suppose, in a sense. Yeah, well, I think there definitely is a line between, as we said at the beginning, professionalism and maybe self-indulgence. I mean, it's interesting to talk about the two joker, two jokers because you have Heath Ledger, who very famously, you know, was approached the character in a very method way. For his uh, for the Dark Knight, he locked himself up into a, in a hotel room for a month. He uh, mm. read uh, graf- comics and graphic novels that particular to the Joker. He wrote a diary. He but he kept it very much insular. He was very much in his own mm. head with it, and he fashioned the voice and he fashioned yeah. the general sort of the uh, the emo- you know the emotive quality of the, of the character he was portraying. Whereas Jared Leto was very much he was playing. I feel like he was play- he was being 
he was being method, but in a very sort of playing, kind of playful, mm. performance-driven way. We're not necessarily about getting emotionally rooted in those sort of like, yeah. you know, like foundations, but more about just like performance and more about like, you know, oh yeah, I'm going to send condoms to yeah. colleague, use condoms and like dead rats and stuff. Because it's interesting that Michael Jai White, who was in The Dark Knight, um, said that like recently came out within an interview about the fact that actually Heath Ledger would break character a lot of the time mm. in between takes and actually just be asking people and go, oh, what did you think of that? Do you think that worked? And like, yeah. if I modulate my voice like this, does that make sense? Mm. But also at the same time would take himself away from the cast and the crew so that he still had that element of surprise during a take mm. to sort of affect the characters in that way so that the actors would have to sort of work towards that and add to the unpredictability of the Joker as a character. Yeah, well, there's a famous example of that when uh, Ledger walks into the uh, to Bruce Wayne's penthouse uh, mm. with uh, where he does, you know, we are tonight's entertainment. And it's uh, and Michael Caine uh, is at the, the elevator door when Ledger and his cronies come in. Mm. And, like, Caine had lines for that scene. You know, he's supposed to, like, say something when uh, Ledger comes in. But he, he it was the first time he'd seen Ledger in full costume and makeup mm. and in character. And he just forgot his lines. And Ledger just carried straight on, just walked straight in <laughs> with a shotgun and just, like, carried, carried straight on. And that made it into the final cut of the film. So I think, you know... Uh, method acting, I think ultimately, you know, the, the approach can be a great springboard for lots of other things. It can, but I think it ultimately, when it comes to any creative endeavor, but especially with acting, you can't, sponta spontaneity is key mm. and unpredictability is key because where would be the fun? I think just from my perspective, where's the fun in knowing absolutely everything and how it's going to work? You've mm. got to have that unknown aspect, you know, what the, 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 the X factor, you know, the lightning in the bottle aspect of like, oh, you're on set and you've worked it all out, you've rehearsed it, you've planned it, you've written in your diary, you know, you know what the character is. But at the same time, you know, you could, you know, fireworks could be delivered by just like throwing something yes. a bit off kilter and just trying something new. And I think, uh, you know, people tend to think of method acting as being utterly meticulous, like Daniel Day-Lewis, people think sort of almost make joke about it, how thoroughly he prepares for a role. But then I think even Danny Day-Lewis allows room for experimentation. Yeah, I suppose that's the, the sense of having, if you know the character inside and out, it allows you to improvise better mm. because you spent so long in their shoes that you can just, and taking from personal experience when I had to do that role where I would spend like a good half an hour beforehand just being that character walking around doing my normal stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it meant that when things did go wrong, which they inevitably did during a show, we were able to just, do it in character and play it off how you would. So I suppose you, that, that again is a benefit to doing it as a process. And mm. um, I think the point again, where like I find it becomes unprofessional slightly is where it kind of, so Stanislavski, the big theater and film practitioner and acting practitioner who sort of, this is where the method method sort of started from a lot of the stuff in his original stuff is not about um, as such. Um, it's about using that so that you know the character, you know where the character is going, so that you have that ability to almost kind of improvise if needed. Mm. But it has become cannibalised a little bit to a point now where it comes across as um, people trying to make it seem that like you you have to be in character one hundred percent of the time, and you've got to do all this. Like I think a big example of someone where I'd say it goes into unprofessionalism is Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. Yeah, that's like, a great example for that. Having like him having to be him for something where it was only like by the end of it they only got ten minutes worth of footage. Exactly. Because he was just so hard to work with because of 
it's stipulations and I think it's the point where it becomes restricting that's not the point of method acting as such it's supposed to be using restrictions to create that character initially but then if it becomes restricting on the character when it gets to that point then it or restricting on other people's work that then helps towards that then it becomes a problem as such yeah I think then it 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 steps over the mark from um, being professional to being kind of self-indulgent I think um Brando is a great example, mainly because he didn't do, famously for a method actor, he didn't do virtually any preparation for that film. I mean, mm. he famously, he turned up late for the film, you know, in yeah. the Philippines, he didn't he show up on time, and he hadn't even read Heart of Darkness, the source novel. No. You know, and then he read it on set, and he was like, oh, Fra Francis, this is amazing. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, I know, I've written the script, you know, I've, I've been planning this for years. Um, so, <laughs> come on. <laughs> come, come on, Marlon. Come what on. do you think this is, Happy Feet 2? Every time. Um, but I think I agree that, like, you know, well, if you've done your research and, like, you've gotten into character to the point where, like, you know the character inside out, then you can open it up to deviation mm. from that. You can you can experiment. You can try things out. And I think, ultimately, that the, the freedom to do that is very important. It, and the freedom, I don't think, is given by the actor. The freedom is given by the director and the free yes. and, and the, uh, the production team, the crew, and the other actors as well, to a certain extent. I mean, uh, Paul Gleason, yeah, a gr great actor who mm. was uh, obviously in The Breakfast Club, principal in the breakfast club vernon he said that uh, tension was the enemy of the actor the main enemy of the actor was tension mm. and um and he said that if if a set feels tense at all then the actors are not fully comfortable and relaxed and only when they're fully comfortable and relaxed can they just feel because i think acting is is sharing you know you're, you're being it yeah. can be quite you know i mean the fact that if you're on a film set i mean in being in a theater in front of hundreds of people is hard enough but on a film set you are still in front of dozens of people lighting mm. guy sound guy director editor other actors other egos it can be quite a, a, a intimidating experience and i think the more relaxed and comfortable that is it sounds like it's a better experience you get better work out of that yeah all that i suppose though yeah. it's interesting like you say tension being the enemy um i, I went to like in november q a for matthew holness's film possum mm. and that's about sort of abuse and um child murderers and uh this evil demonic puppet and um sean harris whispering sean harris <laughs> is um is is the main actor in the film and he's known for taking it very seriously very method sort of restrictive and Matthew Holness when asked about this was like yeah he was he was hard to talk to on set like you couldn't go up and speak to him because he was in this place mentally um which meant that the whole set was quite tense as such because it is basically a one-man film mm. so but he said the benefits of that actually was by having such a tense set, it helped with the mood of the film. And so it got the cinematographer into that mood and it got everyone into that mood and actually helped create the tone which the film has now. And he, he thanks Sean Harris wholeheartedly for doing that. Mm. So I suppose it does work in some senses like that. And I suppose... I feel like the conclusion we'll probably end up with is like it works for <laughs> different strokes for different folks as such. It's kind of like what works for that film and what works like if you're trying to do method for uh, a sort of like raunchy R-rated bland comedy, then I think you've like you've gone the wrong way as such. But mm. but I think yeah, I suppose my question is with it as well. Is it there's such a focus and we reward method acting so much? Does it take away from sort of the actors who are able just to switch it on and off 
and just do it in the words of Laurence Olivier, that famous story where Dustin Hoffman's running up and down to make himself sweaty for a scene. And Laurence Olivier says, just do the acting, darling. Mm. Like, uh, is it taken away from those actors who um, don't do that? So like uh, something, an example, say, would be Tom Cruise in Magnolia. I know Tom Cruise is, there's a, there's a bigger discussion to be had there, whether he's a performer or an actor, but I'd say like in his early work, Definitely an actor. I yeah. mean, it's interesting that um, you mentioned Dustin Hoffman because um, there's a famous, or well, yeah, the famous story about him. I think he did that, and also he like stayed up all night to look convincingly over, for Marathon Man. For marathon yeah, man. this and, is, and, and he like he, he wasn't shaven, and he looked terrible, and he's like it was all for the performance. And Olivier was just like, yeah, why don't you just try acting? Yeah. And there's another story about Dustin Hoffman on the set of The Graduate where he was cast in that part, the part part for the of Benjamin Braddock in. Um, the Graduate was originally written for Robert Redford, mm. uh, but then um, Mike Nichols, the director, went for Dustin Hoffman because he was he thought he was better for the part. And but for months he didn't tell him properly. He didn't confirm for him properly that he was like comfortably cast and on set. And like you know, you might Dustin Hoffman for a lot of that film thought he was miscast and might even be fired because the studio didn't want him. But Nichols was defending him. Was like, no, this is the yeah, right guy. This is <laughs> but Nichols engendered that atmosphere of tension. In mm. Dustin Hoffman, and like, and, and like, you know, and he did it on purpose to sort of generate that fe- sense of fear and anxiety and paranoia and tension in the character of Benjamin Braddock, so that it would infuse his performance with greater energy. And and you can definitely, so you can definitely make a case for tension being a good thing. Yeah, like again, you just did with Possum because, and like Dustin Hoffman, the Graduate, tension if it's applicable, if it applies to the situation, the character, it definitely can infuse it with added energy, which can work very well mm. towards it. But. um what was the yeah, what was that so was the start, yeah the and about part. like how kind of performance like does it take away from actors who just turn up and do like do the acting is it yeah. the culture of method acting I suppose is what yeah that it's about. almost put on a pedestal a little bit um, mm. well I think that, I think that is back to the sort of like kind of Daniel Day Lewis is at least partially responsible for that mm. because he has won three Oscars now and yes. each one for an incredibly method performance My Left Foot There Will Be Blood and Lincoln and each role is pretty much transformed himself into the characters mm. I mean Paul Thomas Anderson who made There Will Be Blood said that um, when you get Daniel you know you get you get your character you you, you show yes. and it's the character that you wrote you get the character he's there the character's there on set and then you do what you you do what you need to do with the character to make mm. the character work and the film work and PTA is also another director who said like Paul Gleason tension was the enemy was that like essentially everybody wants to you know and also discussion and re- and rehearsal with the enemies? Apparently, D D Day Lewis, as we shall call him, <laughs> D Day Lewis, uh, uh, makes him sound like he's like a basketball player. Like, D Day Lewis going for the hoop. He said that like um, with um, uh, with rehearsal. Apparently, Lewis doesn't enjoy a lot of rehearsals. He does, but all the preparation he does beforehand, before they even get on set, mm. and then rehearsal wise, there's like maybe a little bit, but he really doesn't enjoy. It. He enjoys just getting that working up that level of preparation and meticulousness and planning, and then just letting it all come out on set and not doing much rehearsal time. Yeah. Um, which is which is interesting. And I think I think a lot can be said for the fact that the set, in terms of that, what our argument is about professionalism and, and, and sort of unprofessionalism, the set is a uh, is a sort of special place. It's a magnetic place. Yes. It's like the acting and the work. Because acting is essentially, it's a job. You are working. Yeah. You know, like you're also, I think, playing. Uh, actors say that, you know, acting is essentially, you are being in a very childlike state of a very mm. emotive, and you are playing a character. It's pretend. But... Um, you know, you are doing a job and the set is a work environment. Yeah. And anybody you take who's so method or sort of maybe indulges in the method too much and takes that acting off the set, that's when you start crossing a line like Gerald Leto or Jim Carrey. Yeah, I was going to say, in, that's the big example. Uh, yeah. Having recently watched that um, Andy, Being Andy, the Andy Kaufman documentary yeah, Jim, Jim and Andy. Carrey. Yeah, yeah that it, watching that, I 
I kind of, and this again is a personal opinion, but I appreciate the craft that he puts in and you do see like the effect it has on some of the family members of Andy Kaufman's family members that he like Jim Carrey um goes and speaks to them as Andy Mm. and it does kind of yeah it does um add something to it I suppose in there that they felt comforted at and it's almost a form of therapy for them but then at the same time and yet you you get sort of like Danny DeVito who'd worked with Andy Kaufman was like, oh, this is Andy. Like, he's just being like Andy. But then there's other instances where like Jerry Lawler, who's the famous wrestler who like planned a lot of skits and planned a lot of stuff with Andy Kaufman. Like, Jim Carrey, rather than like, did Andy Kaufman the performance, it was more Andy Kaufman the performance rather than Andy Kaufman the human being as such Mm. because of... He he kept on like inciting and attacking Jerry Lawler on set to the point where Jerry Lawler didn't want to be on set anymore, and really hated doing it. And that, in a way, whilst say like he might have helped with the memory with the, the his family, with his friends like Jerry Lawler who they'd worked together for years on stuff, like that sours it surely. Like he and he says he's like really upset about how it is, and obviously at the end of the day. The big person you got to go to for the final say on it, I suppose, when it comes to the film is Milos Foreman, who directed the film and who actually named one of his kids after Andy Kaufman because of how much Jim Carrey sort of brought to the role and how much he was very happy with the film, Man Mm. on the Moon. But at the same time, when you actually see the stress that he's under during the documentary of having to like work with Jim Carrey who won't turn up to set or do stuff like that and that I don't think that adds anything to it I think is the problem like like him sort of messing around doing what he says is Andy what Andy would do on set and like but again like this is Andy Kaufman the performance as such because Danny DeVito said that Andy Kaufman whilst he was a bit of a joker and obviously did all this stuff he turned up to set every day on time for taxi like he was known Mm. for being kind of anxious about being late yeah being professional yeah he would still like do random stuff and he hated being on taxi and like he he was a practical joker in any other way but like when it actually came down to people liking him that was a big focus for him so I always think that's a key kind of example of whether it really is worth it I think that kind of doesn't really give an answer as such because Mm. the performance is great but whether it was worth the hell he put certain people through, through yeah. yeah i mean to reach that it's, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer really although in some of the cases it's not i mean i think it depends whether or not you um you sort of set a lot of store by the uh, fact that the the method acting is about the performance just the performance and nothing mm. but the performance and like whatever you have to do extraneous stuff like you know either whether it's sending dead rats or um mm. or sort of like trying to you know aggravate like your friends and colleagues mm. you know it's like some people might set store by that, but I just think like acting is, you know, it's, it's not real. Like acting, you're being another person who isn't yourself, you know, mm. and like, and you should be able to, it's about control. It is about control and, um, and, and summoning, summoning something within yourself that's, um, applicable, you know, to the, the emotional state of the character. And that is something that you can control. So I think when you're just getting, you know, when you're getting into behavior like that, it just doesn't mm. seem to me to be, it didn't, it smacks of, unprofessionalism and ill judgment because you're just like you it's not as if like you're out of control 
well, you you're being out of control, but you're yeah. not, it's not like you're you're just you're doing it to sort of for yourself. It's kind of like I think it's ego is involved in, when it comes to that, and ego mm. like you know, cause look at me, I'm so such a great actor. Yeah, um, maybe that's I don't know if that's quite a shallow. Maybe that, and I suppose it, it's hard to like, and this is like throwing a real line in the sand, but maybe that's where the problem then comes in with someone like Jared Leto, who has given really good performances. Mm. No, like um, Dallas Buyers Club, you yeah, know, like for a dream, that kind of thing. But then also has done some really awful performances, mm. and I'd, I'd argue the same with Christian Bale is another one that like yeah. Well, there's that famous story about him exploding on Terminator like, Salvation. Yeah, which I get out of my eye line. I think he was probably just angry at the fact that he was making a film with McGee, but uh, <laughs> and he's taken it out on the lighting director, but lighting technician. But yeah, yeah, it's um, it's an, it's interesting. Mm. So. A couple of questions for okay. you, some quick-fire, speedy questions, um, which, again, poke the bear of method acting on this one. Um, Brando or Lewis? Which Lewis? Bra- uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. All oh, right. Were you thinking Jerry Lewis? No, I was thinking Jerry Lewis, and I would take Jerry Lewis over both of them, to be honest. Uh, Again, uh, picking option C, which is a recurring <laughs> no, theme across, was, the, uh, across episodes. Da- like. Didi Lewis. Didi, Didi, Didi Lewis? Yeah. Uh, Leto or Phoenix? Phoenix. I mean, that's, I suppose that was an easy one. You're that's a big Joaquin Phoenix fan. Oh, yeah. He's, he's amazing. Uh, dead rats or condom sent to your trailer? Dead rats. Interesting. Actually, no, condoms. <laughs> can I, get, can I, get, I can throw them away. I can, you know, dead yeah, rats. I have to, was a bit. <laughs> I have to bury a dead rat. <sighs> Just a, a small funeral. Like, <laughs> little Jared, get in the ground. Um, <laughs> uh, would you choose weight gain, a la Charlie's Theron in Monster, or weight loss, as in Christian Bale in The Machinist? Um, weight gain. Oh, just because you could eat a load of ice cream. Yeah, it's it's much more enjoyable. Yeah, and you can uh, and you can have fun wa- uh, working it out. My favorite is um, favorite like comparison of that is Charlie's from on Tully, mm. um, where she's like she hated it because she had to, she put on fifty pounds and she was just like I hate it. Like she felt so gross and not great. In comparison to Jessica Chastain, who is like for the help she gained 15 pounds mm-hmm. and she was like yeah i just got to melt down uh soya vegan ice cream and just drink it out of the bowl it was great <laughs> and it's like it's interesting seeing how different people yeah yeah uh, would you rather choose years in the wilderness and um, as in last of the mohicans daniel day lewis style or days in solitary confinement as he did for in the name of the father days in the wilderness definitely Oh, you could pick up some valuable skills. You could be with nature. Whereas if you're in solitary confinement, you're basically that's that's not going to be very nice mm. for like a long time. I mean, you still get food in one, and the other you having to like kill your own food and eat yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. But I'd if, rather do. If that. you bring the dead rats with you, you'd be fine. <laughs> um, would you rather sell all your possessions, Adrian Brody style, as he did for the pianist, or place crushed glass in your shoe, as Billy Bob Thornton, Thornton did for Sling Blade? Uh, crushed glass. Oh, I mean, um, you know, call me materialist, but I'd I'd rather keep hold of my pain uh, over fashion is what you. <laughs> <laughs> so it depends how long I had to have the glass in my shoe for. To be fair, he had it for every scene, so that he had um, he had a special walk, um, that gave his character in Sling Blade a specific movement. I, I bet it was like sand that glass by the end of the shoe. I bet it was just like they replaced it each day, oh, Jesus. so that it wouldn't get any less painful, so he wouldn't get used to the pain. Wow, okay. That's it. <laughs> so he's gone for cl- crushed glass. It's his final <laughs> answer. Uh, and then finally, uh, would you rather memorise all of 50, all 50 of The Doors songs, as in Val Kilmer did for The Doors, 
Or would you rather drop acid in an unknown place as Shia LaBeouf did for one of his films where he did some method acting? <laughs> for, for, uh, I forgot the name of the film. Shia LaBeouf just does in general. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't It doesn't seem like it's just a random thing. Provided I had like good friends with me and like a new... A good glass was, of water. A glass of water, I would go for the drop in the acid. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Although I wouldn't want to drop it with Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> because you, we've all we've all heard the Rob Cantor Shia LaBeouf song, you actual know, cannibal Shia, Shia LaBeouf. LaBeouf. We've all heard that, so I don't want that to happen. So, especially not on acid. <laughs> Going on from that, I suppose there's multiple stories of those weird things that people put them through, um, and we're talking about sort of is it worth it? Is it worth it? And say like, uh, in my opinion, I'd say that Charlie's Theron. It's worth it in all her films because I think Charlize Theron is probably the best method actor mm, out there. Is my argument because of the way that like she does it very subtly, and mm. um, but even except for obviously in comedies, but I think she does it to an extent as well. But like she, she just the way that she does it, I think is much more subtle than others. But the unpopular opinion that we're looking at more so is uh, you think Daniel Day-Lewis is actually overrated as an actor well I don't know I feel like because what you said uh, <laughs> you just instantly paddle backwards <laughs> before the fanboys come wait, for hold you on, hold on yeah, no, it's, I mean, hold up the interesting thing is that like because you said Charlie's Fronds the best method actor I mean I'd probably say if I had a favourite method actor I mean Joaquin Phoenix I don't know how much how much preparation he puts into his roles but like each role feels utterly realised utterly um you know, meticulously put together and, but also utterly organic. Mm. Each of Joaquin Phoenix's roles, whether it be, you know, Inherent Vice, uh, Walk the Line, The Master, especially The Master, you'll never really hear. They all feel utterly organic and real and emotional. Mm. And and that's why when I, you know, when I say, I, I'd say I prefer Joaquin Phoenix to Daniel Day-Lewis, I, that's why what I'd go, that's what I prize more in the acting I see than just raw meticulousness and preparation. I, I suppose that you're saying with like, Whacking Phoenix, even though it is a performance, it's part of the film and it doesn't feel like he's taking away limelight from the other elements which make it such a great film. Whereas Daniel Day Lewis is the film in whatever yeah. he's in, it's like everything else is, I suppose, for you reduced slightly or just kind of, yeah, it falls every- into the background compared to him eating the scenery. Well, this is the interesting thing because I think that's, I agree with that. I, at that point, certainly on the case of there will be there will be blood because I think all the other actors are kind of in orbit around him. He, it is his movie. It Interesting. Is I think Paul movie. Dano, no, Dano I, holds his own with Daniel Day-Lewis in that film. I think. I I think no. I his think, is his is. Sorry, go. On. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I think Paul Dano is really good in the film. I think, I don't, I'm, but I'm not sure if he holds his own. Not because he's not a bad actor, but because the film doesn't give him the room quite to hold his own. Mm. I think the film is so utterly about. The, it's the the philosophy and the uh, um, sort of the emotional drive and, and sort of journey of D. Day Lewis's character that um, it just it it is about him. Uh, Paul Dano's really there, you know, in relation to to Daniel Day Lewis. It's mm. Daniel Day Lewis is not there because of Paul Dano, you know. Like it's uh, whereas Whacking Phoenix, you can say the opposite for the master, where it's two performances, really free if you count Amy Adams, but it's two main male-driven performances. We should always count Amy Adams, always because she's amazing. But like it's Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and they're both perfectly matched, perfectly opposite, mm. both absolutely at the top of their game. And it's two actors that are like are bouncing off each other, playing off each other, truly as actors, mm. um, it take you know giving and taking. Whereas if there'll be blood, it really is Dan Day Lewis owning the movie, and it's Paul, Paul Dano's character kind of, and this is in the script as well. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. Struggling to keep up. 
but you know he can't. Yes. Yeah. So and I, but so and but but in terms of Daniel Day Lewis, I think that's the case in Nalby Blood. I don't think it's the case of Phantom Fred because the core of my unpopular opinion on this people is that I think he's better in Phantom Fred than in Nalby Blood, and he of course he won the Oscar for for Blood. Uh, in Phantom Fred, because he has these other characters around him, he has Alma played by uh, Vicky Creeps. He has mm. um, Leslie Manville as is playing his sister, um, the Queen herself. <laughs> yeah, who, and she's incredible in the film, and she is she really is the power behind the film. The film mm. is maybe that's because of the film, what the film is about, and how the script works. But for me, because he has those actors and characters around him to play off of it's really a trio of, of characters in phantom fred and also because i like i just like his character more in phantom fred i think his performance mm. is better he's more nuanced he has more humor he has more pathos he has there are moments where you absolutely like you can't understand him and you kind of despise him because of his yes. prickliness and his his the fact that he is as meticulous in his dressmaking as as the actor is in his craft but also because he has the moment in bed where he sees the ghost of his mother and he says i can't stop thinking about you and he has tears on it you know in his eyes yeah and there are moments there are real moments of genuine emotion which contrast with with blood where he's basically angry or maybe a bit nervous or just driven i've abandoned my boy exactly. i've abandoned my child exactly. <laughs> he's a creature of like rage and drive in in blood whereas in phantom fred he feels more flesh and blood i think and, and that's not necessarily like a mark against the film because i think that's the point mm. but that's my my opinion is which might be unpopular that's, is that i think he's better and more nuanced and i like him more in phantom fred i suppose you're attacking more the culture that's kind of because there's so many stories about him and like it, it's more out there and because he's so secretive so people kind of dig more a little bit more about him mm. that there's a culture out there which has heralded him see more kind of against him being heralded when it should actually be an equal playing field potentially and say like people like Charlize Theron and Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman should be held at an equal standing. I don't know. I don't know if it's about equal standing. I think they are because I think, well, certainly by the by awards recognition, we've, Hoffman won, you know, won an Oscar. I'm not saying he won as more, he didn't win as many Oscars as Lewis, we, but like... Yeah, he, he only he, won for Capote. Yeah, I think, but I think it's just what the culture that people maybe audience members have perpetrated or like to f perpetrate about mm. like, you know, because it's quite funny about thinking about Daniel Day-Lewis like sitting in a room, like, you know, learning yeah. how to sew like a like hundred buttons on a dress so he can do a film. You know, it's quite funny, but when it's you also never actually see him sew anything because that's the whole point. He gets everyone else to do it. Well, that's kind of true. But although he does do a bit of sewing, but um, it is kind of, it's kind of funny and it's kind of awe inspiring. And, and mm. because he, it's like Kubrick, Kubrick developed, built up this, this sort of like. Not Kubrick again. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he built up like this aura around him of like, because he, he didn't do a lot of interviews. He didn't talk mm. about his process and he made the he turned out these huge movies and like that were so meticulously put together kind of like lewis with his roles that mm. like that a culture of mystery and kind of like intrigue developed around him where like and and it's the same with lewis and, and actually mm. like I don't, if lewis hypothetically if lewis and kubrick made a film together i actually don't think that would be a very good thing at all because i think they'd cancel each other out almost they would cancel each other out and i think um lewis would, wouldn't be able to cope with the multiple takes because mm. he doesn't like apparently doesn't like takes many takes he yeah. likes to just do it and then move on i think whereas kubrick wants to get it right i suppose it's interesting as well like, i suppose that we're talking this from like a modern perspective where because if you go back to bef like people have forgotten a little bit about like de niro mm. as a method actor and al pacino and they were kind of the forefront of uh, and brando as well bringing it across and nicholson yeah yeah but I think the interesting thing, I suppose, is, and this is again, we're shooting at giants here, but like having rewatched, I think the the one thing the sort of the newer method actors have got, 
and I think Daniel Day-Lewis maybe falls back into more of the Robert De Niro Al Pacino is that I think I can tell when he's giving a performance and that that I don't mean that in the negative way because everything every acting role is a performance in a way yeah I mean more that you can he, he takes up so much of the frame and I find that a lot with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and like I find sometimes it's actually like I, I rewatched The Untouchables the other day mm-hmm. and I was just I was like this isn't really Al Capone it's Robert De Niro being Al, 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 doing Al Capone, Al Capone yeah. I think that's the same with some of the roles of Daniel Day-Lewis it's Daniel Day-Lewis doing that whereas I think he because the whole thing of him being the character he's very chameleon-esque mm. but I find that sometimes you can still tell he's a chameleon, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, it's very noticeable. Like same with Pacino, I'd say, in certain films. I think there's more of a hit-miss rate than actually people put think. across. I still think that each of their performances are great. I just think calling it kind of like, oh, it's just the character, I think is maybe a bit reductive. Mm. Well, it's interesting that you bring up that generation of actors of De Niro and Pacino and Nicholson, because I think going back to Lawrence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman when he said just try acting I think there was definitely a different a, a, a gap between like the older classical style of acting mm. which is more owed a bit more to theatre you had Lawrence Olivier and like all those guys hit the back Richard Harris wall, yeah yeah which is like it's great acting but it's great acting in a very in a classical style mm. it's like classical music as opposed to pop it's like it's very different it's less it's more in, it's less sort of quick and intuitive and like mm. spontaneous it's more sort of refined whereas like with 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 the like new american cinema of the 70s with scorsese and de niro and uh, pacino and nicholson doing their work it mm. was much more about what was on the day on the set what the ga- char- actor had autonomy to bring to it and like to form mm. the character with the director like auteur acting almost yeah and i think with de niro but again, I think that's the point, that auteur almost is pretty much very similar. I think that even though they tried to be so far away, it was pretty much very similar in a sense of having that, putting a line in the sand and going, this is the this is what it's going to be. Yeah, a stamp on the Olivier, stamp. Yeah, yeah, like Olivier and Harris in comparison to what kind of has always been put across that it's, oh, it's about them being chameleons and sort of getting within, within to the role. And I think... When you look at say something like Charlie's Throne and Monster, I think that's a key example of when you do get lost in the role, you can't tell that's Charlie's Throne. At no point do you kind of like go, yeah, so, yeah. totally. That's like, a complete transformation. I mean, with yeah, I mean Robert De Niro is an interesting one because he because I think you can still tell it's Robert De Niro, even like Raging Bull, where he puts on mm. all that weight and he becomes Jake LaMotta. He is being Jake LaMotta. He's not playing Jake LaMotta. Jake, Jake LaMotta, I should say. Um, but you can still kind of tell it's De Niro. Mm. But I think, I mean, my favourite De Niro performance is Rupert Pupkin in The King of Comedy because he treads that line between... Again, yeah. yeah between, he transforms, you can't... You can't quite... And it's amazing how he went from, like, gaining, like, pounds and pounds of weight for Raging Bull and then two years later, King of Comedy comes out and he's exactly as he was before with a moustache. He's, yeah. he's playing a geek and he's... But, like, with King of Comedy, like, he's treading that line again, that, that, that great thing De Niro does where he treads the line between... You, you don't know if he's playing the part or if he's actually being the part. Mm. I think that's one of the things that De Niro in his prime did better than nearly anybody else is that like he f- kind of hoodwinks you into thinking that he is kind of being like Travis Bickle. He is like as lonely and as, as Travis Bickle, yeah. but he's also playing it. There is a bit of a distance, mm. you know, like and uh, between him and the part, but also he's right there in the thick of it. He's right there experiencing what Travis thinks and feels, what the, the psychopathy of Rupert Pupkin you know, yeah. he like he's he's right there, but also distant. He's using it, but also um, vi- um, sort of susceptible to, susceptible to it. Moving on into a sort of slightly more left left skewed weird 
crazy. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. full whacking Phoenix going off and growing a bit and starting a hip-hop mu- movement. Um, crazy. <laughs> uh-huh. But Billy Barnell, I want you now to pitch to me a really meaty role, something that you've always wanted, like a role from any history that a sort of a method actor could get themselves into. And if you want to, it could be you're pitching to Daniel Day-Lewis to get him out of retirement. Obviously, now he's retired after Phantom Fred, but bringing him back for one last ride, like in 20 years, he's had enough of carpentry and doing the gardening. And living in Ireland. And- yeah, and he's now like, you know what? I'm coming back, and this is you've got to pitch this meaty role. Oh, oh! I mean, I have, I've, I've kind of got one. Well, it's all the the role is interesting, but I think it's the director. I think the director would be key in bringing him back. So I think um, the thing that would might that could bring Lewis back, D Day Lewis back in all his glory. <laughs> it might, I, I'm thinking like a a Robert Oppenheimer Oppenheimer film, okay, directed by Terence Malick. I, I think because I think he's worked with all the great directors. He's worked with um, P.T. Anderson. He's worked with Spielberg, Scorsese. You know a lot of the, mm. the big names. But you know, I f- and I think who I was just thinking like, what's the uh, who's a director still working today who has that re- that reputation and that's. I mean, he's I suppose all, he's lost uh, it in in recent years <laughs> yes. in Malik, but like he still doesn't he still doesn't mm. stop him from attracting and massive names to his films. Uh, and for I, listeners, what who is Robert Oppenheimer? Just to give them a, a bit more of a. Well, he was one of the uh, the fathers of the atomic bomb, so uh, and I think that's a meaty role, mm. and uh, I think. As directed by Terence Malick, D. Day Lewis wouldn't be able to resist mm. such a role. Uh, but but the funny thing about if Ter- if he was cast in a Terence Malick film, <laughs> can you imagine that? Because like he would give. Oh god, the amount of takes. No, 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 not the amount of takes. It'll be the fact that he'll like he'll build up for it. He'll do all this research into Oppenheimer. He'll become Oppenheimer. And then he'll, he'll get cut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. He'll like he'll bring all give the performance of his entire career, win like the Oscar like, and the Lifetime Achievement Award at the AFI. Yeah. And then he'll be left on the cutting room floor <laughs> because yeah. Malick does that with a lot of his actors. Like famously with the mm. thin red line, Adrian Brody um, was cast as the star of the film. He was sold as, to be the star of the film. Yeah, he was given the script. He was the main character. He appeared on and the then, cover of magazines. Yeah. This is all via George Clooney. I know about this. So how much of it is his? Uh, bit, you, you pal George. Yeah, pal George. <laughs> but um, and then he was just left on the cut room floor pretty much. His role was reduced to something tiny. And then mm. the film became about, you know, this ensemble and about the imagery rather than about Adrian Brody. And so <laughs> Poor I, I, Adrian I, Brody. And he didn't know until the premiere. So I can just imagine like that Malik and Lewis making this movie and then turning up rocking up at the premiere and then like and Daniel sitting yeah. down and like I said at the front row is like, I'm not in this movie <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, and that that would Should be, have stayed doing my IKEA shelves. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Like it just goes full butch and happy feet too with the kids. Oh. And um, <laughs> But yeah, I think that would be something that would lure him out of out of retirement be a be, be, yeah. be a double edged sword because then he'd be left on the cut room floor. So See, interestingly, I'll throw back to you. I think the one that would bring him back quite a bit um, would be if they ever did a Stanley Kubrick biopic. Oh, yeah. Spielberg. Spielberg has been wanting to do one for ages because he's got so many, like... Memories. Yeah, and archives and stuff. Mm. And he always said that he'd be the one who'd want to do it because it'd be interesting, like, yeah... If Daniel Lewis, oh, that would be interesting. I'd never thought about that. That could be really. But I suppose it'd be a tough one because Stanley Kubrick didn't have that much scandal in his actual life. It was more just like mm. his way of working. So whether there'd be actually and that interesting meets, a film, he's a yeah. bit too nice a person for a biopic almost. Yeah. But yeah, something like that. Or I'd hope that potentially that they'd write him like a brand new script, and it was something really kind of like meaty because I suppose he is used to doing like a lot of uh, period roles and based off real life characters mm. which is a lot of sad but I'd quite like to see him in like a a new version 
just a new script, maybe like him as he's never done a gangster. No, film. Well, well, I mean, Gangs of New York is yeah. kind of a gangster. Well, film. Daniel Day Lewis in space, D Day Lewis in space, like uh, <laughs> get Claire <laughs> Denny on the role oh, on yeah. the phone and get her to do like another, like after High Life, like another after weird sci fi, which is m- very meaty for him to get into. Like, mm. and quick hot take. Robert Pattinson's trying to be the new Daniel Day-Lewis. Or <laughs> <laughs> Pattinson and Daniel Day-Lewis in the same movie. Yeah. That's too much for one film, I think. You get the Twilight fans and the Method acting fans. <laughs> I'll just remake Twilight with Daniel Day-Lewis and uh, Amy Adams as Bella. <laughs> that, I would watch that. You know. <laughs> that sounds pretty That's good. That's basically just the plot of Phantom Fred, isn't it? Minus Amy Adams, yeah. Yeah. Like, Phantom Fred is basically Twilight. I can't, no believe, I can't believe you just said that. Like... Take that back, right? About Very now. insular man who has problems that limited and edition issues. Blu-ray is going to come out in a minute, <laughs> yeah. upside the head, and issues. And she's got to try and get to him. And the only way that she can do is by joining him in a weird, fetishistic, ritualistic manner. Mm. With that, it's blood. With Phantom Fred, it's mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a uh, this is uh, an opinion for another time. But I'm telling you now, Twilight and Phantom Fred are the same film. For anybody who hasn't seen either of them, that must sound really weird. Mushrooms. If you've seen them both, <laughs> it makes it still <laughs> agree makes no with me sense. on that one. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think in conclusion, apart from me throwing out the biggest bombshell <laughs> of, the, of the the day, method acting. It works when it works, which is a really weird conclusion to have. Well, it's a bit of a disappointing conclusion because it's yeah. kind of like, oh, we already knew that. But I suppose, you know, it depends on the actor. I think somehow... Depends on D- the film. F- film, D-Day Lewis, somehow makes it work for each film, probably because it's so selective and because he, when he, because of that, he chooses directors who are sort of big enough and professional enough to work around him or work with him, yeah. who he respects. And there are some actors who, um, you know... Can, you kind of use it as an opportunity mm. to sort of like for their, for them, I suppose, for themselves and just like to to get, you know, for whatever reason. Context is king in the end, mm. or queen. The, the Depends if you're talking about Charlie's Theron or, or Daniel. Always Davis. talking about Charlie's Theron. Mm. <laughs> she, she's the best method actor. Okay, well. Just throwing that out there. It's just like, because we've not got that long, so you can't <laughs> come back at me with that. Just like yeah, maybe hitting she, it Maybe she actually you. like, you know, like, um, like put like metal things on it from Anne Max Fury Road, you know, like those metal marks yeah. <laughs> of, of Morton Joe. Maybe she actually did that. You never know. You never know. Mm. Well, that was Now in Cinema Scope. Uh, I'm Joe. And I'm Billy. And thank you again for listening. Thank you.